0: If you were to kind of get to know somebody, you know, like Sunday morning, like we can get to know each other and I can know, you know, who's a Raiders fan and who's a Seahawks fan. Uh, You can kind of tell that about a person. But to really get to know somebody, like sometimes the best way to get to know somebody is to get to know the people that know them most. Okay, so I'm thinking like if you really want to get to know somebody, go get to know their family, you know. And so, you know, if you want to get to know someone, go get, get to know their siblings. That's probably, like, the, the greatest way, is, is the siblings. Like, like, that's where people are real, is at the home. And I, I was thinking about this. I was thinking it, was kinda, it would be kind of scary if you went and asked my siblings, hey, tell me about Pastor Kevin. Tell me about Kevin. And, and, I, and I would love to think that if you were to ask my siblings about who I am, I'd love to think that they're going to tell you that I'm incredibly handsome. I'd I i I'd love to think that they're going to tell you that I have a great sense of humor. I'd love to think they're going to tell you about how self-sacrificial uh, I am and how I, I, I give myself to my family at all times. I'd love to t- for them to tell you that I am incredibly smart and got great grades in school. Like, these are the things I hope you would hear from them. But honestly, if you were to ask my siblings to tell you about me growing up, you might hear something like this. You might hear my oldest sister, Melissa, who lives down in in Pasco. She would probably tell you that when she got married, I think I was 9 or 10 or 11 years old, somewhere around there, and and she got married, and and we were given this little uh, bag of rice, and I'm like, what are you supposed to do with this? And they're like, you throw the rice at them when they come out. And I thought, I'm going to be good at this. And I took that rice, and I got right below the door. And as soon as that door opened, I thought... Boom! Right in their face. Like, that's going to be the story she's going to tell you about my childhood. In fact, Uh, one uh, one of my other sisters, they will tell you the story. Well, Kevin, as a child, let me tell you about Kevin. Kevin one time cried for hours... Like hours, like I wailed for hours because my mom and dad decided that our dog was getting too big to live in the city. And so they had to get rid of our dog. So I went to school one morning and the dog was there. And I came home from school and my dog was gone. And they'll tell you Kevin was a crybaby. He cried for like four hours straight about my dog, Biscuit. Yes. My other sister might tell you uh, the time uh, when we played t-ball together. And uh, I don't know if you play t-ball. T-ball is this, this great game. And uh, the t- thing with t-ball, though, is the coolest thing about t-ball is hitting. Like, in the field, nobody knows what they're doing. So, like, you are so excited to, to, to hit. And I remember at this t-ball game. I had to go to the bathroom. But I realized it's, I'm going to, like, be up to bat pretty soon. And I don't want to miss my chance to bat. And so I said, well, I'm just going to hold it, okay? And I got up to bat. And I had to put the ball on the tee. And I hit the ball, I hit the ball far, okay? And it ended up being a home run because every hit in T ball is a home run, basically. And so I hit the ball and I started running and I found it really hard to hold it in anymore, okay? And sometime, somewhere between first base and home, like it all came out. Like, 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 like everything. Like my white pants turned brown, like it all came out. And my sister, will always remind you when you ask about Kevin's childhood, about that time that he was playing t-ball. And ah, there we go. You can just picture that. (laughs) Siblings have this unique perspective on a person's life because your siblings, they're amazingly close to real life. They've been around you in the good times. They've been around you in the bad times. They've been around you in the embarrassing times. And the thing that surprises me is somehow my siblings and I, like even though we've been around each other and we've seen the good and the bad, like we still respect each other. Like we still love each other. Like that's pretty remarkable that we can love each other after we've seen each other growing up this way. And it makes me think, like have you ever thought about Jesus? Like Jesus was born as a man. That means he he was born into a family, was raised with with siblings. Can you imagine what it would have been like growing up and having Jesus be your brother? Like, I just think, you know, Jesus coming in and being like, hey, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, I'm the son of God. They're like, yeah, right? Go do the dishes. You're not the son of God. What are you talking about? You're just my dumb brother. Like, I could picture Jesus coming in and saying, hey, guys, watch this. I can do this miracle. And they're like, stop with your dumb magic tricks. Go take the garbage out. I mean, I could picture, like, can you imagine, like, your brother is Jesus. Every fight, every fight you have is your fault. Like every time you go and tell on your brother, they're like, no, it's your fault. Like, can you imagine having Jesus be your brother? Like I would look to get so many like pranks on him after the fact because I'd always be the one at fault and I'd always be the one getting in trouble because Jesus was sinless. Jesus was, was perfect. And so that's why I am super intrigued by the book of, of James If if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of James. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. Uh, There's an usher in the back. They'll come and bring one of these Bibles to you. Uh, I find James to be so, so intriguing. Because the author of the book of James is actually James, who's the half-brother of Jesus. So he grew up with Jesus. And I find this super intriguing. So we're going to start this series throughout this fall. Going through the book of James, we're going to call this series, uh, A Faith Worth Living. And what intrigues me about this book is the fact that it was written by Jesus. Or, excuse me, it was written by James, the brother of Jesus. And I find this really intriguing because you've got to imagine, like Jesus' brother has to have a unique perspective. In fact, if you know a little bit about the Bible, it actually turned out that when Jesus began his public ministry, his family didn't believe him. His family thought Jesus was, was crazy. In fact, there's a story where Jesus is in front of the people and he's teaching them and saying, I'm, I'm the son of God. And his family comes and they, they, they grab him and they take him away. Because if you have a crazy brother making crazy claims like he's the son of God, like that's what you do. You take him and say, you're embarrassing our family. Come, we got to control you. And so his family, they didn't believe Jesus growing up. James did not believe Jesus. But something happened, and it changed everything. Because this brother, who James thought was a fruitcake, this brother dies, goes into the grave, and comes back alive three days later. And all of a sudden, things begin to change for James. He begins to put it all together. Man, all those things that Jesus said, my brother, the Son of God, well, he was dead, and now he's alive. And he puts it together, and he says, man, this is true. I, I, I believe, I believe who Jesus is. And so the brother of, of Jesus, James, becomes a leader in the early church. He becomes the, the pastor in Jerusalem. And this is why I think the book of James is so, so fascinating, because you've got to imagine, he just has a very unique perspective. Because James was there, when nobody else was. Before, before there were disciples, before there were critics of Jesus, there was his family. There was James. He was around everything. He watched Jesus learn. He watched him grow. He watched him resist temptation. He watched him overcome trials. And you've just got to imagine that James has his unique perspective to faith and to Jesus and to, to the way that Jesus taught. And so James took all that he learned from Jesus and he wrote it down in this book that we call James. And I'm excited to look in this book for two reasons. Two reasons why I'm excited to look at this book of James. The first one is James is going to wrestle with this relationship between faith and works. Because there's kind, of, there's kind of two camps in Christianity. One camp in Christianity says, hey, Christianity is all about faith. All you do is believe and that's it. And if you believe, that's all you have to do. But then there's this other group in Christianity that says, well, yes, there's some of that, but you also have to do certain things. You have to do this and you have to do that if you're going to be a Christian. And so there are these two camps in Christianity, faith and works, and they're always fighting against each other, okay? And, and what I love is, is James is going to wrestle with this. In fact, if you look through the entire book of James, 14 times James is going to speak about faith. He's going to speak about this idea about we put our faith and in, in, in trust in Jesus. But then also, if you look in the book of James, there are 59 commands, 59 things that we're supposed to do in the book of James. So James, we would say is all about faith and James is all about works. And he's saying these things aren't separate. They're, 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 they're interrelated together. And, and so what James is, what we're going to see as we, we study through the book of James is so we're going to look at the relationship between these two things, faith and works. And we're going to see that for us to have a, a, a right and a, and a godly and a biblical understanding of faith and works, that there's a connection between these two and they have, we have to understand that. And so we're going to have the opportunity to, to look as James wrestles uh, about this connection between faith and works in our own lives. And the second reason why I'm excited to study the book of James is because I love that James is going to explore how our faith should, should interact and how our faith should impact our own lives, should impact our city and our world around us. I mean, James is going to get into this book and he's going to deal with some very practical issues that you and I face. He's going to deal with, with, uh, tri- with trials. He's going to deal with, with poverty, with riches, with favoritism. He's going to deal with social justice. He's going to deal with the tongue. He's going to deal with worldliness, uh, boasting, planning, praying. And the list just keeps going and going of all the practical issues that James is going to deal with regarding our faith. In fact, James is going to show that our faith should have an impact into our daily lives. Our faith should have an impact to the city and the world around us. James is going to uh, implore us that our faith should move us to do something. Our faith moves us to lead a Bible study. Our faith moves us to help addicts in recovery. Our faith should move us us to serve food in homeless shelters. Our our, our faith should move us to adopt orphans across the world. Our faith should move us to uh, go and visit uh, widows in retirement homes. Our our faith should move us to tutor kids in reading programs. Our our faith should move us to pray for sick people in hospitals. Our faith should move us to train men and women in practical life and job skills. Our faith should move us to coach kids in at-risk kids in sports. Our faith should move us to do something in our city and our world around us. And the list goes on and on as to how your faith and my faith should impact our life in the city and the world around us. And James is going to emphasize again and again that our faith should move us as Christians to take steps of radical obedience, to make the gospel known throughout our city and our world around us. That we actually have to take this message and do something with it to the people around us. So I'm excited to be able to see James wrestle with these two things and for us as a church to wrestle with these two ideas of the relationship Between faith and works and how our faith should impact our life and our city and our world Today we're going to start in james chapter one We're going to look at verses two through twelve What i'm going to call joy in the journey is going to be the title of this message And one of the things I love about the bible Is I love how relevant the bible is I mean James the brother of Jesus he could start out anywhere he wanted he could start talking about anything he wants but he's going to jump right in to a reality of life he's going to jump right in to trials and uh, I love that so before we before we read I want to I want to just pray for our time together God I just want to thank you for this opportunity uh, to be here today I want to thank you for your word and just this opportunity to to open up your word God we want to hear uh, you speak to us today. We want to hear your word be taught. We don't want to hear a pastor's opinion. God, we want you to, to speak to us today. And as God, as we begin this book of James, God, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would help us to, to hear what it is you have for us today. God, I believe that you appointed this time for us to come together for a reason. So God, I pray that you would minister and speak to every one of us in here today, Jesus. We love you and praise you and plead for your presence with us now. We ask this in your name. Amen. Before we get started, I I forgot to mention, we've got these uh, uh, resource guides that we put together in the fall and the spring for uh, sermon series. And uh, so these will be used for live groups as well. Uh, But there's a great spot in here um, on each of these weeks to be able to take sermon notes or doodles and draw pictures of me, whatever else you want to do. So if you have one of those, these are on the resource table. They'll be available for the rest of the next couple of weeks. And so uh, if you'd like to pick one up today, you can do that. So James chapter one, starting in verse two, and here's here's what James writes. And he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See what he wrote there? He said, He said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He says, When you meet trials, like, how many of you wish I would said, if you meet various trials? Like, like we'd all love for, for if you meet various trials. Like, I'd hope that James would say, if you meet various trials. In fact, there's probably a dream of, of many of us in here. And there's actually pastors that, that try and teach this idea. That if you place your faith in Jesus and, and you become a Christian, that all of a sudden, hardships go away. All of a sudden, if you have enough faith, then you're going to be... There's no sickness, there's no hardship. You're going to have all the money you need. You're going to have good health. And everything's going to go really good for you in life. They say, Jesus will make your life golden. And when trials come, you begin to think. You believe that way. You begin to think, well, Christianity isn't working. Like, I tried to believe in Jesus, and I have these trials. And so maybe Jesus isn't the answer. Because I thought if I follow Jesus, then everything's supposed to be perfect. Listen. That idea that if you follow Jesus, everything's smooth, man, that's not my story. That's not the story of my faith that I've seen. In fact, when I look at the godly people that I've looked up to, that I've learned from, that hasn't been their story. In fact, I don't think that's the story that the Bible teaches. Let me tell you, Christianity is working. I promise you that. But it doesn't mean that trials won't come your way. Trials are a part of life. And you can't deny that. And that is just a part of life. And so he's going to begin talking about this relevant issue because we deal with trials. And some of you, some of you are in one of those seasons right now where you're in that storm of life. Where, where, where you're in the middle of it and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm going to make out of this storm. Some of you, you can look out of the horizon. You see the winds picking up and you see, you see the waves beginning to brew and you know that storm is coming. And some of you, listen, you're in a season of calm. Let me, let me just remind you, it's not a matter of if trials come, it's a matter of when. And they will be on the horizon eventually. He says, when trials come, and he, he says you're going to have various kinds of trials. They begin to think, well, what kind of trials is is he talking about here? Like, this, like, like, like I've got a difficult marriage. Is that a trial that he's talking about? Yeah, yeah, that would fit in that idea of being a, a, a various kind of trials. Well, what about what about this sickness I have? What about this, this chronic pain that I'm dealing with? Like, is that one of the trials? And he would say, yeah, that fits the context of being a trial of various kinds. What about, what about I have this kid, and this kid's acting like a fool, and I can't get him to do anything good in life, and, and they're just wasting their life away. Does that fit that context? And James would say, yeah, I think that fits into this context of various kinds of trials. When he says various kinds, this is all sorts of trials. This is big trials. This is small trials. This is long trials, drawn-out trials. This is short trials. This is uh, uh, financial, emotional, spiritual, physical, mental, relational, vocational. All kinds of trials will come our way. And this is when James is going to kind of get scandalous. Because this is what he said. He said, count it joy when you meet trials, when you meet various trials. Count it as joy when you come into a season of hardship. And I'm like, joy? Joy? There's no way that I'm going to smile as I've gone through some of the things I've gone through in life. There's no way I'm going to put a smile on my face and just say I'm all happy and giddy. Like, 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 is he crazy? crazy. Like, sure, I might have a joy when I get out of the trial, when I'm in that, that, that season of calm, but in the middle of the trial, no way. See, the thing we have to understand is, is James is giving us a, a command. This is an imperative. He's saying, hey, when you're in a trial, this is what you need to do. Consider, count it joy. Consider it joy. See, what he's doing is he's trying to address how we think, he's not dealing with our feelings. This isn't just an emotional response. He's dealing with how you think about trials. See, this is not me putting a smile on my face and pretending everything is okay in the middle of a trial. See, what happens What happens is we, we, we mix the word joy up with the word happiness. We mix these two words up. And we need to understand these are two very different words. Happiness is a result of your circumstances around you. Happiness is because something happens in life joy is in spite of your circumstances there's a difference between the two and oftentimes we mix them up like well well he says i'm supposed to be happy in the middle of a trial no see i i love being happy like happy is good i hope you like being happy happiness happiness is when you walk into work on monday and your boss is like hey come into my office and he's like i'm gonna give you a raise like that makes me happy that should make you happy Like happiness is when you go to work and you have a long day at work and you come home and you're greeted at the door by your dog and your wife says, it's Taco Tuesday. Come on, like that's happiness right there. But what happens? What happens when there's no happiness? What happens when the happiness is gone? When you get sickness? When you're in a season of depression? When one of your close friends has turned on you, and there's no longer that friendship Like what happens when you get called into your boss's office and instead of saying you get a raise your boss says you're fired Like what happens when you come home after a long day of work and instead of being greeted by the dog You're greeted by the cat And your wife says I have nothing for dinner. You're on your own. I'm going to target like, like like, what happens in seasons where there's no happiness. And this is where joy comes in. That every one of us can have times of happiness because of our circumstances. But as Christians, we get something better than just happiness. We get joy. Joy despite our circumstances. In spite of everything around us, we can have a, a joy in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, speaking about Jesus, gives us, gives us powerful picture of joy. It says, speaking about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Okay, when I picture what Jesus accomplished on the cross, when I think about the suffering he did, I think about nailing his hands and nailing his feet and all the things that happened to Jesus on the cross, like that is miserable, Like, in fact, the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus prayed to God and said, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, God. I don't want to go through that hardship. But Jesus said, ultimately, it's your will, not mine. There's no happiness for Jesus on the cross. But it says that he considered it joy. Joy in spite of those circumstances. This is a peace that God offers that is, 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 passes all of our understanding that in the middle of this hardship, somehow, some way, God can give us peace in the middle of that. And this is so crazy. Like, it's hard to explain. It's not something you can teach this in a book. But James, this is what he's saying. He's saying, count it joy, my brothers, my, my friends, my, 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 my sisters, my fellow Christians. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And I don't know about you, I want that, I want that. I want joy in the middle of hardships. I want joy in those times that I should be down. I want what Jesus offers. and so what James is going to do is he 's going to give us some some secrets, some some tools, some ways that we can begin to have joy in the midst of our trials, and this is what we 're going to look at for the rest of today. How can we have joy in the midst of these trials? first one that, J, that James is going to give us is he's going to teach us that trials are a pathway to maturity. Trials are a pathway to maturity. Trials are, are a proving ground for your faith. This is, a, this is a gymnasium where we have the ability to grow in our faith, to stretch our faith, and to become more like him. And so, this is saying, again, this isn't a feeling. This is, this is a, how you think about trials. This is having a proper perspective in the middle of the trials. And here's what he says in verse 2. Starting in verse 2, he says, Can it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, what, what James does is he calls trials actually a, a testing, a testing of your faith. See, what happens, what's natural for us is when that hardship comes, when that trial comes, it's so easy and natural for us to take our eyes off of God. When that hardship comes, we think, my Christianity isn't working. Like, if, like, like, Jesus, I'm going to church. Jesus, I'm serving the church. Jesus, I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I'm trying to do these things, Jesus. And you're not working because I'm in a hardship. And so you have this temptation to take your eyes off of God in the middle of this trial and say, I need to turn my eyes and take my trust on myself because I'm going to be the one that's going to make it through this trial. Or you begin to say, instead of trusting Jesus, I'm going to go trust this person or that person and they'll make my situation better. They'll take care of my hardship and things will get better. See, the picture that comes to my mind, the picture that comes to my mind is your marriage vows. Like you think about this, your marriage vows. You got married. The traditional vows. I, Kevin, take you, Samantha, as my beautiful wedded wife. And what does it say? For better or for worse. For richer or for in sickness and in for better or worse. Despite your circumstances. I'll still love you as my wife. And this is what James is saying. That when a trial comes, it is that test. It is that time where it's not just everything's good. It's not just in health and in prosperity and in good times. But it's also talking about the hardships, the poverty, the downsides. And and James is saying this, this trials are a test to see do you really love Jesus? Do you really trust Jesus to carry you through and he says, these trials, this testing of your faith, he says in verse 3 that they, they produce steadfastness. They produce this endurance, this ability to withstand hardships and trials. And he says, in verse 4, he says, let steadfast, steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, sometimes when we go through hardships, we go through trials, sometimes we think, man, maybe, maybe God's judging me. Like, like maybe that, that, that one time I watched that movie that I probably know I shouldn't have watched. So maybe God's mad at me and this is judgment because, because I did that. Maybe, maybe God has abandoned me. Like, like, like God, but God never really cared for me after all. Or maybe, maybe God's not powerful enough in my life, which is why I'm going through this, this hardship. Listen, all of that is bullcrap. I just said bullcrap at church. All of that is a lie. Like, that's not biblical Christianity. God's goal in the middle of our trials is to produce maturity in us. This is God's goal in our life, is that we would become mature, that we would be made more like Christ, that we would grow to become more like him. And James is saying, hey, those trials that you're in, those hardships that come come to you, that testing, they're meant to mature us, to shape us into the image of Christ. Isn't this how we grow in every other way of life? Like you go through trials, and you learn, and you grow, and you get stronger on the other side of it. In fact, this past couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to teach my last child how to ride a bike with no training wheels. And so uh, it was one of those things where I'm like, we probably need to teach this kid. And, and it, was, it was late. It was, it was kind of getting dark at night. And I'm like, all right, here's what we're going to do. I, I, I put him on the bike that didn't have training wheels on it. And I said, it's getting dark, so I couldn't do everything that night. So I said, here's what I want you to do, Oliver. I want you to sit on this bike, and I want you to pick your feet up. I want you to get comfortable balancing. And so he tries it. He's trying to pick his feet up, and he's falling either way. And he falls down on the ground. And I'm like, all right, buddy, it's late. It's getting dark. We need to go inside. The next day, the next day, I said, hey, we're going to go work on this riding our bike again. He's like, no, Dad, I don't want to. He said, you know, I like my training wheels. My training wheels, they work good. Okay? Training wheels are not really training wheels. Like, they're not really teaching you to, like, like be able to balance on a bike. They're just, they're they're, they're lazy. Okay? That's just what they are. In fact, you're not really riding when you're riding with training wheels. Like, like, like the thing I know with Oliver, with my son, like, if he would learn to ride without those training wheels, like, he's going to go in places he's never gone before. And he's going to have a greater fun than he could ever imagine. But with training wheels, you just can't do that. And I think, how many of us, are living life with training wheels. Like, this is safe. This is secure. But we aren't really living. We don't know what God has in store for us because we're trying to be safe, trying to play it safe. So, Oliver was scared, and I'm like, no, buddy, we're going to do this. And, and I put him on the bike, and I kind of hold on to the seat. I'm like, all right, here, you got to start pedaling. And he starts going, and he falls down. And he looks at me, and he's got these tears in his eyes. And I'm like, nope, you're brave. Come on, man, you're brave. Get back on this. And he kind of sucks it in. And he gets it. He starts riding down the driveway. And he looks back and he's got this big smile on his face. And then he keeps riding. He rides over to our neighbor's house, who's actually my, his aunt, my sister-in-law. He rides over to her house. Look, I can ride my bike. And he rides back over to our house. And he says, look, I can ride my bike. Listen, isn't this how we learn? Sometimes we fall down. Sometimes we scrape our knees. And that's how We learn. You learn from those mistakes. You learn and you grow because you go through them and you follow through. You learn by, by, by realizing that sometimes we think we know the right thing, only to realize that we were really wrong. I mean, this is how we grow. This is how we mature. And the cool thing is, it took Oliver nine days, nine days, and I put a picture on Instagram or a video where Oliver is riding his bike and he's, he's doing jumps He's, he's sliding, he's got a little drift thing where he slams on his brakes and he spins his bike around. Like nine days. Like that is what God offers us. If we just take our training wheels off and just allow God to produce something inside of us. Spiritual maturity, man, it's that same way. It's that same way. Like if we want to grow, become more like Jesus, man, we got to be willing to, to embrace the trials. Willing to, to withstand them, because God will do something in us if we just allow Him. I mean, some of us think, well, spiritual maturity comes some different way. You know, it's comes some easy thing, like God just comes and sprinkles some pixie dust on us, and all of a sudden we fly, and we're all mature now because God gave us that, that pixie dust. I mean, I I'd love, I'd love to run a half marathon without training. Like, wouldn't that be great? Like, I'd love to do that. I I'd love to learn without reading any books. Like, I'd love to do that. I'd love to take the easy way. And I wish I could tell you, man, there's an easy way to become mature. But I can't say that. Because maturity doesn't come the easy way. That's where the Bible talks about there's this cause and this effect. That you reap what you sow. And James is teaching us that this steadfastness, this, this maturity in trials comes because because maturity comes from these trials because it produces steadfastness, endures, endurance. I think I look, I think about many of us, I think maybe one of the reasons why we're still immature, I think one, maybe one of the reasons why we don't have that maturity that we long for is because we don't want to run trials. We run from them. We, we try and play it safe. We keep our training wheels on. I don't want to go through that trial. And then we have no steadfastness. Listen, I'm not saying you've got to go and create trials in your life and create hardship and create uh, that sort of thing. But you've got to understand that trials and hardships are a part of life. And they're an opportunity given to you from God to grow. And see, unfortunately, what happens for many of us is we're in a relationship and things get hard and we quit. And then we get in the next relationship and things get hard and we quit that relationship. We get a job, and things get hard in that job, and we quit. And then we get the next job, and things get hard again, and we quit. We go to church, and there might be some conflict in the church, and so we quit. And then we go to the next church, and guess what happens there? Conflict, and then we quit. And you know what we don't do? We don't mature. Because we have no steadfastness. We we don't give God the ability to, to mature us, to grow us. Because there's no steadfastness. There's no endurance. There's no withstanding what God wants to teach and do through us. So don't quit too early. As you think about the trials, you think about the hardships, don't quit too early. Allow God to work in your life. Listen, we can rejoice in our trials. Not the circumstances that we're facing, but we can rejoice in God who will change us in the middle of those trials to become more like him. Second thing that James is going to teach us about having joy in the middle of our trials is that trials are going to teach us to depend on God. Trials are going to teach us to depend on God. He says, James writes in verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, just time out right there, okay? If any of you lacks wisdom, raise your hand if you lack wisdom, all right? If you didn't raise your hand, You just show that you really, really lack wisdom, okay? James is saying, hey, listen, if any of you need help, if any of you need help, here's what you do. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Like, isn't that great? Like, isn't that amazing? The God of the universe just said, hey, listen, if any of you lacks wisdom, God will give it to you. All that you can imagine. There's, there, there's no way that he's going to hold back. He will give it to you. Something we need to understand though. Wisdom does not mean knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are two very different words. Knowledge means that you know the truth. Wisdom means that you know what to do with that truth. Knowledge, mean, knowledge is theoretical. And, and wisdom becomes practical. Knowledge fills your mind while wisdom guides your life. Knowledge provides information, while wisdom provides transformation. And this is what God says. This is what James says. That in the middle of that trial, you don't understand everything. If you ask God for wisdom, that he will give that to you. In the middle of that trial, when you're facing that that exhausting and overwhelming circumstance, that hardship, listen, we need more than just knowledge. We need wisdom. Wisdom. And God, is a source of that wisdom, is willing to give it to us. So you could, you could almost define wisdom like this. Wisdom is a God-given and God-centered discernment in the midst of life. Wisdom is this God-given and this, this uh, God-centered discernment in the middle of life. And we have a God who says, if you ask generously that he gives without reproach, Which means that that God doesn't want anyone to hesitate to come to him. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no, nothing that's going to stop him from giving it to you. Like if you're in the middle of this trial, maybe you caused it. Maybe you caused the hardship. God's not going to come to you and say, no, you're an idiot. You failed. No, you're, you made this own mess. I'm going to leave you to get yourself out of this mess. No, what God says is he'll give to you without reproach. There's no stopping what he's going to give to you. But the problem is, the problem is when we face that hardship and that trial, we might, we might ask God. We may say, God, hey, give me understanding. God, help me in this. And God might give us a direction. God might give us an answer. God might give us that wisdom. But many of us are going to begin to doubt. We're going to begin to doubt what God said. Here's, here's, what, here's what James says about doubt. He's in verse 6. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. See, if we're being honest, our temptation, and as we're going through that hardship and that thing, as we begin to take our eyes off of God and focus onto this world, we take our eyes off of God and his answers and start looking for answers according to this world. Almost like we're, we're afraid to trust God. And so we go through this hardship and we say, God, God, would you help me? Oh, God, I'm not sure you exist. God, God, would you tell me your will? Ah, oh, God, I'm not sure I'm actually going to do it. God, God, I know what your word says. I know what your word says I'm supposed to do, but I saw this episode of Dr. Phil, and he said to do something different, so God, I'm not sure what to do. Like, God, I know I should do this, and, I, and there's this godly person in my life, and he says this is what I should do, but I have this non-Christian friend, and they make a really good point that I need to consider. This is how we live, and I'm convinced there's a lot of us that are unstable. There's a lot of us that are seeking God on one hand. We're seeking God's wisdom on one hand. But on the other hand, we're seeking the world's wisdom. Like, on one hand, we're seeking this wise wisdom from God. And on this other hand, we're seeking foolish wisdom of the world. And what we try to do is we take these two pieces of wisdom. We try and integrate them together and try and do some sort of hybrid. And then things don't work and we get frustrated. Like, why isn't this working? How come it's not working? Listen. Is God's word enough? Is God's wisdom enough for you? Is God's wisdom enough for you? Is God's word enough for you? The wisdom that God has given us right here, is it enough for you? When you're looking at at the trials and the things you're facing, are you willing to trust what he says? Because he's given us all the wisdom we could ever imagine. Because I would guess if most of us are going to be honest, we want some of God's wisdom, but we prefer the wisdom of our friend. We prefer the wisdom of Oprah. We prefer the wisdom of our mom and whoever it happens to be. And we're trying to take these two types of wisdom and, and blend them in together. Listen, God has offered to give us all the wisdom we'd ever imagine. He does this in a couple of ways. We have His Word. We have the Holy Spirit. We have prayer. We have godly people that God has placed in our lives. And you are able to get wisdom in all these different areas. But the question is, are you willing to trust God and take him at his word? To trust the wisdom that he has for you. Do things his way. Because I believe that we can rejoice in the middle of those hardships when we remember that God's infinite wisdom is available to us for the taking to lead us and to guide us through those hardships. The question is, are we going to trust him? And speaking about this temptation to trust the world instead of God, there's a third point I think we have to look at to how we can begin to have joy in the middle of our trials. Verse number three, it says, trials teach us to pursue an eternal crown. Trials teach us to pursue an eternal crown. See, one of the things that, that, that's cool about James is, is James was a pastor. James loved people. James knew people's struggles. And he's going to speak to some very specific heart issues. And James is going to introduce a theme uh, right here in verse 9. That's going to be a theme that we're going to see several times throughout his entire book. About this, this relationship between riches and poverty. And in this context, he's talking about trials and, and James, again, because he's a pastor, because he knows people, he loves people, and he wants to speak to the hard issues, James is going to uh, deal with poverty and riches as being an enormous pressure for us to focus on the world instead of focusing on God. To focus on, on the world and our riches and our possessions and our stuff to be our security. Focus on our riches to be the solution to our trials. Focus on our riches at least to numb the pain of our trials instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus. So speaking on the poor and the rich, here's what he says in verse 9. He says, "Let, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich brother in his humiliation because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers with the grass, its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So he's talking about the poor man here. He's saying that that poor man has a temptation. Uh, and it's very easy for the poor man to say, to be sorry for himself. Oh, oh, poor me. I just don't have any resources. And, and the poor man has a temptation to think, if I just had a little bit more money, Like, if I just had a little bit more money, then this this trial would be gone. If I had a little bit more money, then I'd be happy. And that temptation is to take your eyes off of God. And James is saying, listen, the lowly brother, the poor brother, don't long for money. Don't long and assume that money is going to make things better. Or possessions, or wealth, or a car, or a house, or whatever it is. Don't think that's going to make things better. Boast in your circumstances. Boast in the fact that your circumstances are actually causing you to trust in God. You've got to trust God to provide day in and day out. He's saying that's what you boast in. You boast in who you are in God, that you are a child of God. And on the other hand, he says, listen, be very careful if you're a rich person. Be very careful because there's a confidence. There's a, there's a temptation to put your confidence in things of this world, in your riches, There's a temptation to focus on your wealth to cover your hurts, to try and make things better in your own life. And James is saying, hey, listen. Someday, all of these things will fade away. They'll be burned and you will have nothing left. And all that time and all that effort and all that energy that you put into possessions of this world, they don't mean a thing. So he's saying, don't focus on this world. Focus on God and let God be your comfort. And here's what he says next, last verse, verse 12. He said, blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. Summing it up. Here's what happens when you remain faithful through trials. Here's what he says. Here's what the testing of your faith gets you. He says, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You withstand; you don't pursue the world's treasures, and there is a crown of life that God offers to us if we withstand and we endure those trials. There's a couple ways for us to understand this, this term when He talks about talks about the crown of life. One way to look at the crown of life is uh, I think about this past year in January. Me and my oldest boys; my oldest boys have gotten into running; they've been into cross country. And they said, "Hey, Dad, let's run this 5K together, okay?" No, I I want to pretend that I'm a runner, like I, I I wish I was a runner, like I'm a wannabe. The problem is, the problem is, like I like it, but I don't like it enough just to do it for the sake of running. Like I, I like I need to have a goal or a prize at the end of my run. Like 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 if I was promised a banana split at the end of every run, like I'd run every day. Like I would just I'd get after it, okay? that's a good prize. Like I need some sort of thing. And so I ran this 5K with my kids. And at the end of this thing, I remember I got about halfway through and I'm like, this sucks. But I knew that if we finished this race, we would get this really cool, it's not a medal. What is it? A lanyard, a uh, ribbon, piece of plastic that says 5K, you did it. And uh, this was my motivation. Like I knew if I got to the end of the race, get, I don't get this if I quit halfway through. I don't get this if I start the race and don't finish it. I knew if I wanted this thing, I had to run all the way to the end, okay? Isn't this cool? Like I keep picturing, man, if I could run a half marathon, you ever see those people with that 13.1 sticker on their car? Like I'd I'd love one of those. Like you can actually buy them on Amazon. I think that might be cheating, but like I'd love one of those 13.1 stickers on my car. Like what a great reward. And what James is saying is listen, if we endure these trials, like, like he's not talking about this ornate, ornate uh, crown that some king would wear that says, look how great I am. No, what he's talking about is like, there's this crown given to runners after the race. And if you endure, endure to the end, listen, there's that crown waiting for you that Jesus would come and put on your head. And I picture Jesus at that moment, we endure to the end. We endure those trials. I picture Jesus meeting us at the finish line saying, "Well done. You good and faithful servant. You've endured. You withstood. You stayed faithful." But there's a second way for us to understand this crown of life. It's not just a physical crown of life. This crown was promised by God is a symbol of receiving the glorious reward of eternal life. That at the end of these trials, the end of these hardships we're going to go through in life, God meets us with life. Eternal. Eternal life. Forever with him in eternity. In heaven. And we can consider it a joy when we face trials of various kinds because we know that there is a reward to come if we remain faithful. We know that there is a reward that is incomparable with anything that this world could offer us. There is a crown of life that God offers to us at the end. Like, doesn't that give you joy to say, I can survive this because I know what's in front of me. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Like that, It's a promise to us that all these things we're going through right now, the storms that are brewing in life, those hardships we face, that's what God has promised to us in the end. So we can have joy in our trials, not in the circumstances that we're facing, but we can have joy in the fact that God is, is using our trials to change us, to become more like him. We can rejoice in our hardship because God's infinite wisdom is available for us to the taking. And we can consider it joy when we meet trials of various kinds because we can remember that we are living for a reward that is to come. There's a promise of a crown of life that we receive at the end. Isn't that good? Would you pray with me? God, I just thank you so much for who you are. Thank you just for meeting us here today. Thank you for the opportunity just to open up your word. Thank you that your word deals with these real life issues, the hardships we face, because the reality is we do face them. Some things seem little, some things are bigger. But God, I just pray for that person in here today who's in the middle of life right now and he's facing that storm. God, it's hard for us to see past that storm. Usually that's all we can see. It's a hardship. That thing we're facing that's taunting us, standing in front of us saying, you will not defeat me. God, I pray that that person today would be able to take joy. That God, you are doing something in them. That you are working in their heart to change them to make more like you. God, I pray for that person that they would see that God, your wisdom is available to them. And if they cry out to you, that God, you have an infinite amount of wisdom that's available that can help to 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 remedy, to encourage, to, to help them carry through. God, I pray that you help each and every one of us in the middle of those storms to realize that we're actually waiting for an amazing crown of life, a prize that we can't even imagine, an eternity with our Saviour. So, God, I pray that you just help us to understand how we can have joy in the middle of our hardships. Joy in the trials. But God, you are working in our lives. You haven't abandoned us. You're not mad at us. God, you want to accomplish something in us and through us. And God, just thank you for your grace on us. Thank you for your word. Just pray, God, that you'll continue to be with us now as we have the opportunity to 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 just respond. Now there are some in here who just need to spend some time just crying out to you and saying, God, I'm in this storm. God, I'm in this trial. Would you give me wisdom? Would you give me wisdom, God? Would you give me the the faith to obey that wisdom, to follow through? God, I know there's someone here today who've been through the middle of those storms. Today, they just need to spend some time just praising you. Say, God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. God, I am stronger than I was before. God, you have accomplished something for me. God, I pray that you would produce this steadfastness in our church. God, we love you and praise you. Thank you for meeting with us here and now. We ask this in your name. Amen.